You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. Six, the mystery of Mister E. Max, Casey, and Ian approach the Texas town of El Cid carefully. Their eyes scan the skies, looking for any sign of the lights that Ian had shown them on the videotape, but they saw none. The eclipse was fuller here. They were clearly approaching the area of the country under the totality, where the sun was completely blotted out. Even here, the sun was mostly hidden by the eerie black disk of the moon, with only a thin crescent of burning yellow still visible and the sky was a deep, deep navy blue like the edge of twilight. Some of the brighter stars were even visible and winking in the sky. As they continued down Highway 10, Max suddenly stopped. Ian and Casey stopped short behind him. What's wrong? Ian asked. Max was looking across the tumbleweed landscape with a strange searching expression on his face. I've been here before, Max said quietly. Here? Oh, come on, Max. This place looks exactly the same as the last 200 miles. In fact, the whole state of Texas looks exactly the same. Max's attention snapped back to Ian and Casey in front of him. No, I'm serious. I've been here before. I'm totally sure of it. Well, so maybe you can tell us where we are then, since we all seem to be no bloody good at reading maps. And then Ian had the giant folding paper, Go Travel, Map of the United States, out again, trying to keep it from tearing as he clumsily unfolded it and turned it this way and that, trying to wrestle some sense from it. No, that, that won't work. It's not really a map kind of thing. Wait, I think I used to go this way, and then... Without warning, Max whooshed down the freeway and turned off an exit ramp, possessed by some insight. Well... Put that stupid thing away and let's follow him before we totally lose him, Casey snapped at Ian. Ian looked at her like she'd lost her mind also. She gave a little snort of exasperation and whooshed off after Max. Ian sighed and muttered and folded his go-travel map of the United States up as quickly as best as he could and whooshed after Casey. For several minutes, Casey and Ian followed behind Max, who seemed utterly certain of where he was going. Then he stopped, confused, and pondered for a moment, shushing them while he concentrated and then bolted off again in a new direction. He's gone starkers, Ian muttered. Completely mental. What is it, Max? What are you looking for? Casey asked under her breath. In another couple of moments, they were standing in front of a large, old farmhouse. Max froze and stared at it, looking as though he were seeing a ghost. Without knowing why, he felt a profound sadness. Something tugged at him, some old pain he couldn't understand but he felt certain that something terrible had happened here. The farmhouse was the only thing for miles in several directions, and it was clear from the boarded windows and general disrepair that no one had lived here for years. There was a barn off to one side in the sand driveway, a well, and a windmill with several shingles missing. The property was fenced in over rolling plains in just about every direction, 
with many holes and poles just lying in the scrub grass half buried. A single tree grew in front of the large yard of the house, which looked as if it had been generously nurtured when the house was inhabited, but now looked as if it had withered somewhat over the years. I remember this house, Max said. There was a swing set over there. Maybe we should go inside and look around, Casey suggested. Ian and Casey locked eyes for a second, exchanging worried looks. Yeah, Max replied. Yeah, we should. The three of them stepped up the stairs of the front porch and approached the front door. Max reached out and heated up the door handle absentmindedly, and then turned it. The door swung open and Max stepped across the threshold. But as soon as he did so, there was a humming sound like a heavy magnetic field had just been switched on, and the air buzzed tangibly around Max, who then promptly and wordlessly turned around and walked out of the house, right between Casey and Ian, who had been following, bumping shoulders with them, yet not seeming to notice them at all. Max just kept walking away. In fact, he was starting to jog a little bit like he was about to whoosh off somewhere. Casey and Ian looked at each other. Something was wrong. Max! Casey called out to him. Max jumped like someone had just snuck up on him and shouted in his ear. He grabbed his chest and spun around. Casey! Oh, hi, Ian. What's up? Casey jumped down the stairs and walked over to him. What's up? What's up? You tell us. What? Max asked, looking genuinely baffled. You were about to go inside, and then this this buzzing sound hit you, and you just started walking away. What happened? Go inside? Yeah, go inside the house. What house? That house, Casey yelled, pointing. Max looked up at the house, and it was like he was seeing it for the first time. Whoa, this house looks really familiar. I think I've been here before. Yeah, we know, Max. We were just going inside to check it out. You don't remember that? What, now? Yes! Okay, Casey, relax. Max gave a look at Ian that said, So what's with her? Max, you just got zapped by something in that house that made you turn around and leave, and not remember doing it, Ian said. And this is from a house that you seem to remember. I think that makes it really imperative that we get inside and find out what we can. Max frowned. Whoa, I don't remember doing that at all. You serious? Ian nodded. Casey just looked exasperated. Okay, so what now? Should I try again? Max asked. No, I don't think you should, Ian answered. I think one of us should. He looked at Casey, who looked back blankly at him. Okay, fine. I think I should. Casey just smiled coquettishly in reply. It's a good thing we English boys are taught how to be proper gentlemen. Ian walked up the staircase towards the house. But, Ian muttered under his breath, I swear, if I end up getting chased by bloody wolves again, or trapped inside some magic book. He put his hand on the door handle and rubbed it for a moment, heating it up, and then turned it. The door opened. Ian winced and scrunched up his face and walked through. He was standing in the other room for a full minute, waiting for the magnetic sound to wump him. But nothing happened. After a few more seconds, he called out, I'm okay! It didn't get me! What do you see? Casey asked. Not much, Ian called back. It's a living room, all right, with lots of dust and spiders and things. Should we follow you? Max called. I don't know. It doesn't seem to like you much, but I seem to be okay. It might womp you again, so guess it's up to you if you want to try. Same with Casey, but my guess is she'll be okay, same as I was. 
Why do you say that? Max asked, wondering why he had been singled out. I don't know. Probably because you remember this place and we don't. It seems like it wants to keep you out, to keep something secret from you. Something you might find out about if you want inside. It doesn't care about us, though. Max thought for a second and then said, Stay out here, then, and you two can look around and tell me what you see. No sense in your having to chase me across the lawn again. All right, Ian replied. Casey appeared in the doorframe. Okay, here I go. She stepped across it, eyes scrunched up, expecting the magnetic thing to hit her. But after a few seconds, when it didn't, she opened them and she shrugged. Guess it likes me too, she said. But I figured it would, since I'm very cute and very nice. She giggled and Ian smiled in spite of himself. Let's look around, Ian said. And with that, Ian and Casey fanned out, looking around the living room. There was plenty of old furniture covered with dust and cobwebs. The house looked like someone had been living in it right up until some time in the 1960s, and then they just vanished. There were magazines on the coffee table. Life, Time, Boy's Life, Highlights. All June 1962 issues. There were a few Amazing Stories comic books stuffed behind the couch, like they had been hidden there. There was a half-crunched, water-powered rocket toy, a baseball glove, and a strange plastic device with a compass and several lenses on it that said, Ten and one, on one side. Ian flipped through the boy's life, carefully turning each brown page so as not to cause it to fall into dust. Blimey, did kids then really believe this crap back then? I mean, it's all Boy Scouts in America and clean and straight. Oh, and like the websites you go to today aren't just as full of it, Casey replied. They aren't at all. Anybody can make a website so the content is more honest. You know, real-like. Most of my favorites are written by other regular people or hackers. Slash star 2600, you know. No, I don't. Ian snorted in disgust and went back to looking around. In the kitchen, Ian found several plates laid out on the table with the right number of forks and knives perfectly set, as though someone were setting the place for a meal decades ago, just before something happened from which they never returned. Whatever it was... It seemed to have been instantaneous, almost as though they had just suddenly vanished as they were going about their daily lives. It was also strange that no one seemed to have disturbed the house at all since the inhabitants were taken or left suddenly. It was almost as if the town folks saw something terrible happen and were so petrified of coming up to the house afterwards to sell it or close it up that it languished for half a century. Casey wandered up the staircase. There were several family portraits along the wall, but they were all covered in dust. Casey started wiping one off and blowing on it until it started to reveal the picture underneath. Casey shrieked. Ian came running. Max was outside yelling. What? What happened? Casey pointed to the picture, unable to speak. Ian followed her finger. There in the portrait, unmistakably, was Max. He was dressed as young boys did in the early 1960s, and the picture had faded quite a bit over time, and his hair was combed differently. But this was, without a doubt, Max. There was an elderly couple in the portrait posing with Max as though they were his parents or grandparents. But that can't be Max, Ian was saying. Casey was already wiping off more of the family portraits. And there again, Max with the same couple posing with them. Except each time the couple was younger with each portrait. In fact, in the earliest portrait, at the very top of the stairs, black and white, the couple seemed to be very young indeed, and the picture looked as though it had been taken in the 30s. But Max didn't age at all from picture to picture. He appeared to be the same age in all of them, about 12. In fact, he looked pretty much the same as he did now. Hey! They heard Max cry outside the house. What's happening in there? Are you two all right? Yeah, 
Ian shouted back and then whispered to Casey. Geez, what do we tell him? Casey shrugged, and then a look of utter surprise appeared on her face when she pointed out the window behind Ian. Look! she hissed. There were two lights in the sky, turning and bobbing, zagging and zigging like fairies against the eclipse and darkened sky in the background. Ian bolted down the stairs to the front door. Max! he yelled. Look! He pointed to the lights. We have to hide, Max said, feeling scared now. He was trapped. He couldn't go into the house, and he couldn't stay out here. It was flatland in every direction, and there was absolutely nowhere to hide. The lights were getting closer now. You have to come inside the house, Ian said. We'll keep you inside. We won't let you leave this time, no matter what. Max took one last look at the lights in the sky and nodded, and then whooshed up the stairs towards the door. He hesitated for a moment at the threshold, tasting copper fear in his mouth, and then stepped through. Same as before, the moment he was standing fully in the room, a buzzing magnetic sound filled the air and a palpable force kicked him and he immediately turned as if to leave, but Ian and Casey were ready and tackled him to the ground. Max resisted with a great fury. Let me go! Have to get out! Get off me! He twisted and squirmed and flailed his arms, but Ian had one arm behind him and was squeezing, and Casey was doing her best to hold on to a leg. Max's face spasmed, and his eyes rolled like he was sleepwalking. Max! Ian shouted in his face. Max, stop it! We're your friends! Fight it! Max went limp, but his eyes stayed glazed and dazed. Ian let out some air. We have to get him upstairs and find a place to hide, he said to Casey. They hoisted him up and pulled his deadweight form up the stairs. His head lolled and rolled, but his presence popped out of his eyes briefly again as he saw the pictures on the stairs. He sees them, Ian grunted. I think some part of him remembers what they mean. Ian saw the lights now again, getting very near, outside the window. The bright, almost heavenly light was piercing, no, burning through the shades along the window, throwing huge, dark, moving shadows along the floor and walls of the inside of the house. Then the light seemed to be just overhead. Through the spaces in the curtains and the slatted window shades, they could see that it was far, far brighter than midday outside the house. Beams of saturated reds, yellows, and purples blasted down from the sky, Light so thick and heavy and palpable it seemed to burn straight through anything it touched, as though ordinary matter wasn't substantial enough for light like this to notice it. Ian and Casey pulled Max around the corner at the top of the stairs and started moving into a bedroom when Ian noticed an attic pull string in the ceiling. No, let's hide up there, Ian said to Casey. The house was shaking violently now as though an earthquake were underway. Everything in the house came loose from the pocket at once. Things were moving, quaking, bouncing around. Suddenly, an old radio on the nightstand by the bed whined to life, and the small red power light came on, and the sound of static filled the air. It vibrated across the table, and then fell off. The single light bulb hanging from the ceiling in the bathroom flared to life at the same moment. It shone and sputtered at low power for a moment, almost stuttering and going out. And then it was like someone suddenly upped the voltage. The bulb shone very, very brightly for a moment, and then popped. Bulb glass shattered across the bathroom floor. Ian gave a little jump, expecting to whoosh up to the string and pull it, but he seemed to have lost his pocket powers. He couldn't get high enough to reach it. Casey watched with anxiety. What's wrong? she asked tensely. Pocket powers are switched off for some reason, Ian answered, fear in his voice. I'm going to hoist you up on my shoulders. You'll have to get it. Just then, the sound of a phone left off the hook started blaring out of a nearby receiver, startling them both. Ian noticed the source, 
a bedroom phone that had been off the hook so long that it was coated in an inch of dust and several spider webs that had been woven around it. Then a fork, knife, and spoon, an accompanying tray, jumped up from the table bedside and sprang violently and instantly clung to the wall where they remained motionless, as though a massive electromagnet on the other side had just been switched on and was now holding them in place. Ian knelt down and Casey climbed up on his shoulders. Ian struggled to lift her. Just as he got to his feet, both of them were shocked to see the bathroom light bulbs start reversing in time. The little broken shards of glass came together and reassembled themselves into a buzzing, glowing, swinging light bulb once again. Casey was transfixed, staring at the light bulb. Just open the attic, Ian gasped. Just open the attic, Ian gasped, swaying while holding her amidst... Swaying while... Swaying while holding her up against the shaking of the house. Oh, sorry, Casey said, tearing her gaze away. She strained for the string. Her fingertips could just barely touch it. Then she got two fingers around it and pulled down with all her might, and the door swung down. The stairs folded up inside came crashing down, knocking both her and Ian over. Ian got up and helped Casey back to her feet. You all right? Casey nodded. Okay, then. Up we go, with him. Struggling, they heaved Max to his feet and dragged him up the stairs into the attic. They dropped Max on the floor, and Ian pulled the stairs up using the rope. The hallway below was starting to fill with the same thick, blinding light as the outside, and in another moment, it would be impossible to see down there at all. Ian hurriedly pulled the attic trap door shut. The light below them in the hallway was already seeping around the edges of the trap door, shining through the space between the trap door and the door frame, like tentacles of fairy light. Casey reached out. So pretty, she said, and then as she touched the light, her hand snapped back instantly. Ow! Hot! There were several small holes in the rotted wood where light was also leaking in tiny shafts from the outside. Suddenly, the intensity of the light everywhere went down several notches, so that it was still bright but bearable. Ian crept up to one of the holes near the front of the house and risked the peek outside, half expecting to burn his eye. He stole a look and then risked a little more, and then a little more, his eyes growing a little more accustomed each time, until he could peer down through the light comfortably. The two lights had landed in the field near the house, like twin suns perched on the ground. The nearby grass rippled but didn't burn or appear to have caught fire. Several figures were now approaching the house, fanned out and walking across the field. They were, or at least they seemed to be, human. All of them were wearing sunglasses to protect against the glare from the lights and were dressed head to toe in black suits, except for one man. He was walking in the middle of the group, carrying a cane with a gold claw protruding from one end, gripping a blood-red ruby. He was also wearing sunglasses that stood out starkly against his pale, cross-hatched, scarred skin, which looked as though it had once been exfoliated and scraped raw with a cheese grater. Ian gasped. It was the same man Ian had seen in pictures of the house where he had discovered the book. Johnny Siren. The men were near the front door of the house now, pointing. Siren was asking one of them about the house. It's an amshub, one of the men replied. It's placed around the boundary of the house. The man studied the thin air in front of him for another moment and then said, Hmm, it appears to have a singular target only, and uh, it's been activated recently. Twice, in fact. You think this is what Jadith picked up? Simon asked. No, oh, yeah, this amshub is definitely of Niberian origin, the man answered. Curious, though, it's, uh, it's constructed using an archaic style. His voice trailed off. Yeah, but I don't think it could be him. Who? Siren asked. Well, I was gonna say it looks like the Great Betrayer's handiwork. 
Will it affect us at all? Can we enter the house? No, I'd rather study it some more before I give you an answer on that, but uh, here's what I know right now. This is a Guardian Amsham. It has a physical location in space, and this one is placed just inside the front door frame. Although, there probably are secondary triggers around the perimeter of the house. If it goes off, it puts a strong suggestion into the minds of whomever tripped it to turn around and leave immediately. And to completely forget about the existence of this house. <laughs> it seems, and I do stress seems, because I don't know for sure without further study, to be aimed at a specific mind that seems uh, somehow <laughs> tailored. Siren puzzled on this for a moment, eyeing the house. Someone triggered it twice, you say? But I don't see anyone out here, so they must be inside the house. So, this Namshub can't be all that dangerous or tough to get past. The other man nodded. Siren snapped his fingers and pointed at the house. The men all converged on it and started to enter. Ian pulled away from the people and whispered to Casey. It's Johnny Bloody Siren, and he's got a bunch of men with him. Those lights we've been seeing really are UFOs. They flew here in a couple of them. And they know someone triggered that thing in the doorway that made Max try to leave. And now they're going to search the house. Casey's eyes sank. Do you think... Yeah, I think. They'll search the attic. They won't miss that. They'll find us up here eventually. Oh, no, Casey moaned. Ian looked around the attic. There was so much stuff it could take days to sort through all of it. But he was looking for a weapon. Something to use when the men came up here. He found a diary and tossed it to one side and then a chest of toys. Already they could hear the noise of the first floor of the house being searched. Footsteps, yelling, doors banging, furniture being overturned. There was a soccer ball, a tether ball, a deflated football, and a solid, classic Ted Williams baseball bat. But Casey had picked up the diary Ian had thrown to one side. She crinkled her brow as she read the first few lines on the first page, and then tucked it into her backpack. Then she noticed a large, full-length mirror to one side of the trap door and moved towards it. Ian was practicing swinging the bat now, getting ready. He glanced at Max, but he was still in a stupor, neither useless. Ian positioned himself over the trap door. He was betting he could get a couple of them in the head as they came up. After all, only one could climb through at a time. Of course, in the end, there were just too many men. They would eventually be captured. But he couldn't give up. Ian was full of uncivilized rage now and breathing heavy already. He was scared, but he was cornered as well. And besides, this was self-defense. They were coming up the stairs now. They could see shadows in the light trickling through the cracks of the attic's trapdoor frame and hear footsteps climbing the creaky stairs to the second floor. Check those rooms, said a gruff voice below. And I'll check... Hey, look at this. This was it. They'd spotted the trapdoor. They'd be pulling it down any second now. Ian got ready with the bat and moved between the mirror and the trapdoor. Max was stirring. He seemed to be coming too now. What? He said, rubbing his head and getting to his knees. The trap door was jiggling. Over here, Ian whispered to Max. Quickly. Max looked at him stupidly for a second, and then noticed the trap door jiggling himself and caught on, and hurried next to Ian, not sure what to expect, but realizing they were in danger, and that Ian needed all the help he could get. Got it, said the gruff voice below, and the trap door started to swing open. The ladder slid down now, and light spilled up into the attic. But just at that second, something pulled Max and Ian from behind. Tiny hands gripped both by the hair and yanked hard, causing them both to fall backwards under the ground. Then they were both staring up into Casey's face, 
who had a finger to her mouth now and was telling them both to shh. Max and Ian nodded and looked up. They could see the attic framed by a single full-sized oval right in front of them, and nothing else but darkness and each other. They were looking out through the mirror. Somehow, they were now inside of it. Casey had created or entered a dimensional rift again using the mirror, just like she had done when Max had first found her in the pocket. Only this time, she had done it intentionally. They could see the men climbing up into the attic now, looking around, roughly shoving furniture around. One held up a small green gemstone and muttered something, and it shone like an emerald made of light, spreading green warmth into every dark corner of the attic. But Max knew from experience the men couldn't see them now. All they could see was a mirror, and their own reflections. Ian was now tapping Max and Casey on the shoulder and pointing behind them and down somewhat. There was another portal, like the oval mirror portal, but this one was smaller and rectangular shape. It showed a view of the downstairs of the house, facing the staircase. They could see men in black suits coming up and down the stairs. They were looking out another mirror, Max suddenly realized, but one on the first floor of the house. There had to be a mirror on the wall facing the stairway they hadn't noticed before. And sure enough, there were other mirrors they could look out of. They could just barely make out the other side of a bathroom cabinet mirror somewhere on the second floor, and another one on the first floor. There was a very small hand mirror, just a circle, in a bedroom just below them. Everything was totally and completely dark and black except for themselves and these mirror portals punctuating the darkness. And then, as they watched out of the mirror on the first floor, Johnny Siren suddenly began walking up the stairs, studying the picture on the wall as he did so. And then Siren spotted Max in the first family picture, and the look of recognition on his face was unmistakable as he did so. Casey gasped and then put her hand to her mouth. She was whispering to herself almost manically now, saying, No, no, it can't be. No, please, no. Siren slowly pulled the first picture down and stared at it, and looked around the room with his eyes narrowed to slits, as though he expected to see Max crouching somewhere nearby. And then he advanced to the next picture, and his face contorted in absolute rage. He was seeing Max, not aging, in each picture, and it was like he was just now figuring out something he had missed before. Siren bounded up the stairs and out of view. Casey's attention turned to the attic mirror. In a few moments, Siren came out of the trap door, and his eyes swept the room carefully. His men were still searching the room, but they had almost finished, it seemed. Siren watched them wordlessly and then his eyes came to rest on the oval full-length mirror. Sirens seemed to be looking right at them. Casey started shaking and inching backwards on her elbows away from the oval portal. Max and Ian struggled to quietly restrain her. This was the first time Casey was getting a good look at Siren, and he seemed to completely terrify her for some reason. Max wished he could say something to her, but he knew that although they weren't visible, they could still be heard through the portal. He had heard Casey's cries for help and talked to her through the mirror when he had found her. If they made a sound, Siren would certainly hear them. Siren was walking closer now, studying the mirror intently. If they made a sound, Siren would certainly hear. Siren was walking closer now, studying the mirror intently. Can he see us? Max wondered. If he could. There was more to Siren than met the eye, Max knew. It was entirely possible that Siren possessed some kind of vision or other way of knowing they were here. Casey was whimpering into her arm, biting her sleeve to keep from making noise, 
and Ian was doing his level best to silence her. But she just stared up at Siren's scarred, foreign, crisp-featured face and couldn't look away, nor could she stop shaking and trying to crawl backwards away from him. However, Max stood up. If Siren could see him, he wanted to be standing, not cowering on the ground. Max quietly walked towards the oval mirror portal, right up to the surface, and stood there, defiantly, although his heart was thumping so loudly it felt like it would leap out of his chest. Siren kept inching closer, bent and peering into the mirror. His face was now merely inches away from Max's. Max could see every cross-hatched scar, every line on his face. Max didn't move. He held his breath. Siren's hand went up to his red rose eyeglasses and pulled them down his nose, such that he could see without lenses in his vision. Then one hand went up to his left eye. He plied the skin apart at the edge of the eye, trying to make a wrinkle smooth out, and when he removed his fingers, the wrinkle appeared again, and a look of disgust covered Siren's face. He did the same thing again and appeared even more disgusted the second time. Siren growled, and without warning, the claw and blood-red ruby of his cane arced up, and smashed the mirror. The web of cracked glass appeared instantly in the portal, and triangular chunks slid off and spun and bounced, giving Max, Ian, and Casey a strange, fractured view now of what was happening in the attic. But they could see Siren had spun away and was climbing back down the attic staircase. Max let out a sigh of relief. There were voices now coming out of the other mirror portals. There's nobody here. In fact, it looks like nobody's been here for decades. Since Kennedy was shot, at least. Are you certain? Yeah, we checked the entire house. There's nobody here. We would have found him. So, uh, maybe it was a bird or something. What? You know, uh, a bird. A bird might have flown through that namshub, you know, and uh, tripped it, set it off. False alarm-like. You idiot. In the time stop, there are no flying birds. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, what happened? I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense. Huh, Jadith won't be pleased. Well, Jadith is rarely pleased. I doubt we could please her with any news at all. Eh, she's gonna be in a twist until we locate that pendant anyway. Max felt around the floor, and as he moved, he found a twisting ramp in the dark that seemed to take him down to the first floor. He slid down to watch through the portal looking out to the staircase. He could see Johnny Siren now clinging tightly to the family portrait, as though he would squeeze secrets from it. Siren took one last look around the house and then said, Let's go. Back to the sky chambers. We are going back to New York. The men in suits filed in behind him and they left the house. Several minutes passed, then all the mirror portals shone with the same blinding, thick light, and they all shook violently as the ships lifted and started to fly away. Let's go, Max said, motioning to Ian and Casey to follow him. Casey was still shaking and hot tears were streaming down both her cheeks. She got up to her feet, but she was wobbling at the knees, and Ian had to help her to walk. Together, Ian and Max both helped her through the mirror portal on the first floor, and then they followed her through. Max did so rather quickly, as he half wondered if the dimensional rift would simply cease to exist, and him with it, once Casey left since she created it. But no such thing happened, it remained open long enough for him to exit without incident. All three of them now stood in the ransacked first floor of the farmhouse. Out the windows, they could see two lights already far in the distance, spinning and weaving across the eclipse in the sky over the fields of Texas until they were too far away to be seen. Casey broke down into a full fit of sobbing. What is it? Max asked her gently. 
Did he scare you that much? But Casey wouldn't answer. I don't want to talk right now. She choked out, throat full of tears. Instead, she thrust the diary she retrieved from the attic into Max's hands. Here, she said without further explanation. Before Max could open it, Ian said, uh, We didn't get a chance to tell you with everything going on, mate, but... Uh, well, there's a bunch of pictures on the stairs. You're like in them. You and some family. Maybe your parents. Johnny Siren saw also he even took one of them. Max bounded up the stairs and looked wild-eyed for a long moment at the pictures. The hair on his neck stood up as he ran his fingers over each one, hardly believing what he was seeing. Yet he felt curiously alarmed, as if he had seen something he wasn't supposed to have seen. But he had to know the truth, whatever it was. Were these people his parents? He'd lived here before. He was right about that. This had once been his home in the past. He looked down at the diary in his hands. Were the answers here? If that is you, Max, in those pictures, then you can't be human. You have to be one of them. You have to be like Johnny Siren, an alien. You do know that, don't you? Ian said softly. Max's eyes stabbed at Ian. No, that couldn't be true. He opened the diary half in a trance and began reading from the first page. The Diary of Hess and Roma Bloom. April 8th, 1932. Today is the happiest day of our lives. Today we've adopted a boy, a son, into our family. His name is Max. Max Quick. He remembers his name, but sadly not much else. That doesn't matter to us, though. He's ours now. He's older than I would have liked. The adoption agency says he's 12, but there are compensations, dare say. He is a sweetheart and very, very smart. I shouldn't be surprised if he grows up to win the Nobel Prize. But of course, all mothers say that about their sons, even adopted mothers of their adopted sons. And like I said, he suffered a memory loss of some kind, and he's been roaming the streets hungry for who knows how long, poor dear. Maybe it will come back to him in time. But we will give him a new home, a new life, and he will grow up proud and strong, and we will love him very, very much. Max flipped forward, dumbfounded, reading snippets at random. September 12th, 1938. He isn't growing up. It's like he isn't getting any older, like Peter Pan. The doctors don't know why. He should be past his 18th birthday by now, but he hasn't grown a hair. I'm worried. July 20th, 1946. The third time we've had to move. The neighbors just get too curious and start noticing him, pointing at him and us and whispering and talking about him. We don't want someone taking him away, studying him, dissecting him. We can't let that happen. He may be a very strange little boy in his way, but he's ours and we love him dearly. June 5th, 1954. He likes Elvis. Well, who doesn't like Elvis, it seems, these days? But he's not remembering things again. His memory is slipping. Anything past ten years ago, and, well, he just can't seem to hang on to it. We have to show him pictures, tell him again what happened, how it fell into the pool at the zoo, how he climbed that tree already, things like that. December 6, 1961. Someone moved yet again. We're starting to get up there in age, so the moves aren't as easy as they used to be. It's harder to tell the same lies about him again. 
Already we tell everyone he's our grandchild, as we are far too old to be his parents. Oh, how I wish he would grow up. I dreamed of the man he would be someday, and I guess I'll never see it. Did I do something wrong? I asked myself. I can't help but feel guilty, like it's my fault. January 4th, 1962. It's getting more unnatural. I'm starting to feel like something very wrong is afoot with him. All these years we tried to overlook it, but we just can't anymore. It's like he was put here on this earth for something, and he's waiting for it. When the moment is right, he'll do something. Something no one will like. Something... evil. There, I finally worked up the nerve to say it. January 30th, 1962. He's obsessed now by someone he calls Mr. E in New York City. Won't stop talking about him, although he won't tell us who Mr. E actually is or how I found out about him. But he says that Mr. E knows everything and he knows what he was put on this earth here to do. Max is preparing to leave any day now to go to New York City. Well, I don't mind saying, Hess and I are downright terrified now. We watch him out the corner of our eye, terrified of our own son. I can only hope he never knows this and never finds and reads this diary. The diary of Hess and Romy Bloom dropped out of Max's hands and landed on the floor with a dull thud. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www. Dot pocket and pendant dot com. <laughs> <laughs>